Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and I will be your host for this episode, Flying Solo Today. Now, today's episode is more or less off the cuff. I didn't spend too, too much time organizing my thoughts for this episode. The reason is, well, to make a long story short, I had a little bit of a mishap while backing up my files on Friday night. And as a result, I lost some data, including the episode that I was going to air this week. So I do apologize if this episode does seem a bit uh, impromptu, a bit off the cuff, and maybe not as well organized as some of my other episodes have been. Well, today's topic is how to get started as a role-playing game designer and publisher. Here's what made me decide to tackle this topic. Last week, I received a contact through my website from a gentleman who was asking about my old company, Lasalian Games, and whether we happen to have had any uh, leftover Demon Slayer products that I would be willing to sell. Now, unfortunately, I don't have any extra Demon Slayer products. I just have a set of the core books that I keep for myself because, well, it is something that was part of my history. I did spend a lot of time developing, so I want to keep at least that set for myself. Unfortunately, Demon Slayer products are kind of hard to find, and that's because we never really got huge, never really got too popular. Also, we never really had very large print runs, so there's really not a lot of Demon Slayer books out there. Fortunately, though, if you are interested in checking them out, since even though they're scarce, there's not really a high demand for old Demon Slayer books, so it's not like someone's going to charge you you know, $100 for an old Demon Slayer book. Uh, I highly doubt anyone would. They are kind of hard to find. I know the best bet I could think of is to check like eBay. Noble Knight Games is another company that specializes in old and out-of-date products. Last I checked, they did not have anything from Demon Slayer in stock. Now, unfortunately, I don't really have a way to release Demon Slayer products in a digital format. I know I used to have a CD with all of the Demon Slayer products on them. Unfortunately, I don't know where it is. Also, since that game was designed by four people, I can't just take those files, if I ever do find my CD, and throw them up on the internet for anyone to go download. My former business partners would not appreciate that. So, sadly, it's unlikely that Demon Slayer will really ever see the light of day again, but that's not going to be the focus of the main topic today. Now, when the gentleman contacted me, he also mentioned that he was thinking of starting to create his own role-playing game, and he just asked for some general tips or advice and any good resources out there. So that's what inspired me to do an episode just entirely devoted to game design. Some of my long-term listeners might remember that every now and then I do mention my history at Lasalian Games and Demon's Lair, and I do talk a little bit about being a role-playing game designer every now and then, but it's not something I really devoted an entire show to. So, here we go, and for those of you out there who are thinking of becoming a game designer someday or taking a stab at it, I hope you find this information both informative and entertaining. Now, what is the exact state of the RPG market nowadays? Back in 2005, I had a chance to see the late Gary Gygax speak at a convention in Milwaukee called GameFest. This was an attempt to give some sort of convention to Milwaukee after Gen Con left to Indianapolis. He didn't really have a very positive outlook back then. He basically told us, well, if you are thinking of becoming a game designer, you know, don't bet your bank on it. Role-playing game design is probably always going to be more or less a niche market. It's unlikely that we're ever really going to see a lot of really large companies. I mean, I know there are some out there, of course, Wizards of the Coast, 
the people who make Pathfinder, who's, I think they're Piazzo, I'm not sure, I don't play Pathfinder, so I don't know the name of the company, uh, White Wolf, uh, there's, so there are a few big companies, but if you go to the site I sell my products through, Drive Through RPG, or Drive Through Stuff, or RPG Now, you'll notice that there's, well, it's kind of interesting the way the RPG market has evolved, where right now, at least from my perspective, there's a few big companies, there's a few medium-sized companies, and there's lots and lots and lots of little publishers, like myself. And one of the reasons that you will see a lot of these smaller publishers is because getting involved in self-publishing a role-playing game is much easier today than it ever has been. So through the course of this podcast, I will be going back to my days at Lasalian Games and my hand in designing Demon's Lair. As, like I said, there's just been a lot of changes in the market since I first tried to enter it. Probably the biggest change to the role-playing game market over the years has been oversaturation. Is this necessarily a bad thing? I don't know. From a publisher's perspective, it's not desirable because since there are tons of choices out there, that makes it a little harder to really stand out. However, from a player's perspective, the fact that there are all these RPGs out there is actually kind of awesome because if you go to drive through stuff right now, there's, I think, like 2,000 or so publishers on there right now. Now granted, of course, not all of them are making games, but still there's lots and lots of companies out there making different types of games. And if you like playing any sort of role-playing system that has some sort of open gaming license, then you're really in luck. That's one of the things that really was kind of an advantage for 3rd edition, is when they did make the OGL for third edition of Dungeons and Dragons, that meant that anyone who wanted to play that system had a plethora of choices. Again, whether that's entirely a good thing or a bad thing is not really the point of today's episode. Maybe that's something that we'll talk a little bit more about on a later episode. There are three things that I think really have helped the role-playing game market change for the better because these make it a lot easier to create your own company or at least get a product out there. These three things are print-on-demand, online PDF sales, and royalty-free stock art. First, let's take a look at print-on-demand. Probably the most well-known of the print-on-demand sites is Lulu.com, though I know Drive-Thru Stuff also did start offering print-on-demand options as well. The nice thing about print-on-demand is it takes a lot of the expense and hassle away from creating a physical product. Back in the days of Lasalian Games, when we started out, we got ourselves a printer, a laminating machine, and comb-binding equipment. So whenever we needed to make more books, we'd print them up, then we'd have to uh, punch the pages and then comb bind them. Of course, we also laminated the covers. I don't know exactly how cost effective it was because I really didn't handle that part. I mean, I would occasionally buy paper or an ink toner, but I don't think we ever really did any study as to how much it cost us to make each book but it probably wasn't too bad, though it was a bit of a labor-intensive product. I remember there was one year where we were going down to Milwaukee to do a lock-in where we were going to be running Demon's Lair all night. And I remember that we were rushing like mad to get a bunch of books printed up and comb-bound before we went down there. So uh, what's one part I do not miss is manufacturing those books. Eventually we decided to go perfect bound and that's where we would take a digital file to a local printer and we'd have to make a small print run. The problem with these small print runs is well now you have someone else do the labor which means it's going to be a lot more expensive. I don't remember 
exactly how much it would cost per print run, but it could run a few hundred dollars. So unfortunately, we didn't really want to raise the prices of our books too much, so we didn't really make as much of a profit margin on those perfect bound books. They looked a little bit nicer. I think they were a little bit more durable than the comb bounding, but as I said before, though, with print on demand, it's nice because you don't have to do these print runs. So this way you can sell directly to the customer through that website. The customer chooses how many books they want and they choose what shipping method and then the print on demand company handles the rest. So it, it makes it nice and easy and a real cost effective way to get your products out there. The second thing is online PDF sales and this is where I really think the role playing game industry should be proud of itself. We embraced digital technology, I would have to say, a little more readily than some of the other industries. For example, the music industry. They fought for years to prevent the sale of MP3s. Well, maybe that's not the best way to say it. I know that from the start, once they found out that there was this new digital format that would let people distribute music, easily over the internet, of course, they were against it. They saw where it was going. They knew that this would make it easier for people to pirate their music. Or it could have a negative impact on their profits because rather than buy an album that has maybe one or two songs that you like and then six or seven or eight songs that are either garbage or songs that you're not really interested in, now someone could just get those one or two songs instead of having to buy an album. And I think that, of course, there was some justification in their concerns, and this is really a legitimate concern for anyone who produces some sort of product that can be distributed digitally. You always got to worry about piracy. Unfortunately, it's a problem that's not going to go away. But I know, you know, suing your fans, like, you know, Metallica and some other artists were thinking of doing, that's not going to help the anything. Now, another nice thing about both online PDF sales and print-on-demand is the fact that this makes it easier for you to sell to people who aren't in your geographic region. Back in my Lasalian Games Demon's Lair days, the vast majority of our sales were direct sales. We did give people the option to buy our products from the website, but a lot of the people who bought our products, they were either people we met at Gen Con, or at the demos we would do. So again, we were selling directly to the customer. The problem with this approach is it did limit most of our sales to people who were in southeast Wisconsin. So if you weren't in that geographic region, then it could cost more, or it could be harder for you to get a Demon's Layer product. I know we did have a few, couple of fans in other countries. I think we had couple of people who played our game in Canada and I know there was at least one person in one of the Scandinavian countries I'm wanting to say Sweden but I don't remember I remember one of my business partners sent him a word file of a couple of Demon's Layer products just because the cost for us to ship one of these our products to him would just it would have put it out of his price range you know, it was a business decision. I mean, do you want that person over there to be able to play and experience your product and maybe tell other people about it? Or would you prefer not to have the sale because the person doesn't want to pay however much it's going to cost to ship something from Wisconsin over to Sweden, which I'm sure probably was quite a bit. Now, the third thing that has really helped the role-playing game industry grow has been royalty-free stock art. Back in the days of Demon's Lair, we had two artists that we contracted for our work. And they would charge anywhere from about $25 to $75 per picture. And when you're putting 30 or 40 pictures in your book, well, that's going to, to drive your costs up real fast. I mean, I know I spent at least seven or eight hundred dollars of my own money just to buy artwork for Demon's Layer products. So yeah, like I said, it gets pretty expensive. 
Now let's fast forward to today. Today we have lots of artists on drive-through stuff selling royalty-free stock art. So you buy the art and you usually have different licensing agreements that the artist will put in their on their the page. Most artists are pretty good. They're like, hey, you can use it in whatever personal or professional projects you like. You just have to credit the artist. And a lot of them are focused specifically on small press because, let's face it, uh, Wizards of the Coast or White Wolf, you know, those larger, more established companies, they can afford to pay more than two or three dollars for an image. Whereas, like I said, that two to three dollar per image price, that's just perfect for small press companies like myself. So, of course, the only disadvantage to royalty-free stock art is that art is not going to be exclusive to your specific game. But in my opinion, that's a small price to pay to get high-quality art that I can use in whatever projects I want. Now, of course, if you look through the different royalty-free stock arts on drive through Stuff, there's going to be better pieces, there's going to be good pieces, there's going to be some pieces you're not very useful to you, but... I'd like to share with you some publishers I've gone to because I found their art to be really helpful for my products. Now first is Lewis Porter Jr. Designs. They have a series called Image Portfolio. Their PDFs usually run anywhere from about seven to ten dollars, but they'll usually contain anywhere from about six or seven to sometimes maybe eleven or twelve images. There's a wide variety of genres they cover. They've done fantasy, they've done science fiction, they've done superhero, horror. So that would be one of my first recommendations to start if you're looking for a company to purchase royalty-free stock art from. Another publisher I would recommend going to is Cerberus Illustration. There's two particular pieces I'd like to recommend. First is their clip art collection. It contains over a hundred black and white and grayscale images and again they're usually a little smaller they're good filler art like if you just need to fill like a quarter of a page but there's a wide variety there's fantasy there's sci-fi cyberpunk so definitely check that one out they also offer another piece called a decade of fantasy and this one has 100 color pieces and not only that it also gives you the black and white or grayscale versions of those 100 pictures. So these are excellent for cover art in specific. For example, Elemental Cross, Systemless Setting, if any of you have purchased that, the image I use on the cover there, it's a warrior riding a boar with a misty forest in the background. That's one of the pictures I got from Cerberus Illustration. Another artist I bought many pieces from is Sadie. And she specializes in CGI artwork. Now, Sadie has a style that's not going to appeal to everyone. And I admit, she's got some pieces that I really, really like and some that I'm not too fond of. My only real complaint with some of Sadie's artwork is when she does female characters. She tends to focus more on the skimpy, scantily clad females as opposed to women actually wearing clothing or practical armor. Though I, she has actually gotten quite a bit better over the years. I mean, I've seen uh, some of her pictures recently and they're quite a bit better than some of the earlier stuff she's done. But I highly recommend checking out her work. If you're looking for just images of weapons she can use, she does have several stock art packs she offers of modern weapons as well as fantasy weapons. So certainly check that out if you have a chance. Otherworldly Art is another publisher I recommend. I've purchased six collections from them. There's three of them that are more fantasy-based and then three of them that are more pulp-based. Both of them, you get a real good variety of styles and subject matter. Another good artist to turn to is Tamis Baranar. I'm not sure if I'm correctly pronouncing that name. You can purchase his products through Blackhand Source. And he's... He's a good artist. A lot of his stuff tends to be a little bit more realistically proportioned. Another publisher I'd like to recommend is Eregian Entertainment. 
they have a stock art collection that they sell, and that art is done by a gentleman named David Peterson. And I'll be talking more about Dave later on. Finally, another publisher I'd like to recommend is Sign Nomine Publishing. They've released several stock art packs into public domain. So not only is it really good stock art, but you can get it for free. They've released the stock art from uh, Silent Legions, House of Bone and Amber, Scarlet Heroes, and uh, Spears of the Dawn, some of the games they've made. One thing I do like about their artwork, not only is it really high quality, but I specifically like Spears of the Dawn and House of Bone and Amber because a lot of that is focused on African art. But you really don't see the people and cultures of Africa really represented in a lot of stock art collections. So that's one of the things I really like about House of Bone and Amber and Spears of the Dawn collections is it has some really unique artwork that was really helpful when I made my revision of After Peak in 2014. And of course, if you happen to have any friends that are really good artists, they're always good places to turn to as well. Just make sure that you do compensate them somehow. I have a friend who, he's a tattoo artist, and you know he's a really good artist as well. One of the things that he hates is when people go, hey, can I have a free tattoo? It'll be good exposure for you. And I'm sure there's probably game publishers that have approached artists saying, hey, can we have some free artwork? It'll be great exposure for you. Well, yeah, but these people need to pay their bills too. So that's right. you always want to try to compensate any artists that you're going to have do artwork for you, whether it's monetary or with products, just as long as you can reach some sort of agreement between you and the artist for their, their artwork. So moving on, where to start? Now with Lasalian Games, we started designing the game back in high school. I think we started in like 93, 94, and then we continued working on it as I went to college because uh, my other three business partners, they were the grade lower than me, so you know they were still in high school, but we still tried to work on the products together whenever we could. So high school is, it's a pretty good place to actually start developing and thinking about what you want for your game. And the reason for that is, of course, when you're in high school, you have a little bit more time on your hands. Yeah, you're going to have your homework and maybe after school sports and other extracurricular activities, but you know, you can always at least try to doodle things down in study hall or after school. Now, if you end up going to college after high school, college is another great place to really start working on your role-playing game. Yeah, you're going to have classes that you need to study for, but you're still going to have a pretty good deal of free time. Some of you might remember an episode I did way, way, way long ago with my friend Casey where we talked about how we change as gamers. And one of the things Casey mentioned, which I have to agree with, is that gaming as a college student is kind of like that golden age in your life because you have the freedom of an adult, but you're not quite tied down with the responsibility of having to pay a mortgage or support a family. Well, at least most college students are. Yes, I know, of course, there will be exceptions to that rule. But another thing that's really great about developing a role-playing game while you're in college is not only are you going to have that free time available, but most college campuses are probably going to have a fair degree of gamers. When I was at Oshkosh, there was a gaming club on Oshkosh that we did a lot of our demos and product testing through. Now, if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have waited until after college before Lasalian Games became a small business. Because we filed the paperwork with the state of Wisconsin to become a business when I was still in college. And looking back, not exactly the wisest decision. So I would recommend, you know, at least get your product hammered out. Get a couple of books written before you actually start filling out the paperwork to become a legally recognized business. The most important thing is you want to get financially stable. 
because there's, well, you really don't want to break your bank account trying to publish a role-playing game. And one of the reasons, well, as I mentioned before, the market has become highly saturated where there are a lot of companies out there producing a lot of different games. So it can be very difficult to stand out. You also want to consider, are you going to be a solo publisher? Are you going to do everything on your own? Or are you going to form a company? I've done both. Again, when I was doing Demon Slayer, it was a company. It was a partnership. There were four of us, and the nice thing about that is meant we could share the expenses, and we could also divide the work up. So when we were to have our meetings, it'd be like, okay, uh, we need this, this, and this. So I might be like, okay, well, I'll cover the material for Chapter 4, and one of my other partners might be, okay, I'll take the stuff for you know, chapter two and three, and then another partner might be, okay, I'll take, you know, chapter one and chapter five, whatever. So it was nice because you didn't have to do everything yourself. Now, of course, in my current situation, I pretty much have to do everything. I have to do my own marketing. I have to do my own writing. I have to do my own editing, my own formatting and layout. So while it is something I enjoy doing, it can be a bit challenging. And that's one of the reasons why I really don't release a lot of products a year is because I have to do everything by myself and I'm almost 40 years old and I've got a wife, I've got a mortgage, I've got a full-time job and I've got a child. So my free time just isn't quite what it was back when I was with Lasalian Games working on Demon Slayer. Now if you are going to create a game company with some friends make sure they're people you can trust. I cannot stress that enough. Looking back, sometimes I am amazed that I came through Lasalian Games with my friendships with my other three business partners intact. There were some times where we had some pretty heated arguments about designing the game and running the business. That's another disadvantage when you are working with people. Since you are doing a committee decision, it was not unusual for us to be working on a product where one of us had a very specific idea that they wanted for a book or some product we were working on, but the other three weren't quite keen on that idea. And I admit I'm guilty of that too. There have been times where I've been the one person who was like, no, this is how I really want to do it and had everyone else disagree with me. And I've also been on the other side where one of my other business partners was like, this is how I want to do it. And then I was a part of the three that were like, no, that idea is kind of stupid. Let's not do it. Also, another very, very, very important thing of starting a company with friends. Make sure that everyone can contribute financially. One of the problems we had with Lasalian Games is even though there were four partners, we had about two and a half incomes because there were a couple other of my business partners, one of them who was chronically unemployed, and part of his problem was he really wanted to focus on turning Lasalian Games into his full-time job. The problem is we weren't making enough profit or enough revenue for us to all quit our day jobs and turn it into a full-time career. Don't get me wrong, I would have loved it if we could have turned Demon's Lair and Lasalian Games into our full-time jobs, but I was realistic. I had other jobs I was working because I needed to eat and I had bills to pay. And then we had another partner who sometimes was partially employed, sometimes was unemployed. So that's what I mean when we, I say we had four partners but about two and a half incomes. Now another reason you want to make sure that you are going into business with people who are able to contribute is it just makes everything easier. I mean, let's say you had a situation like with Lasalian Games where there were four partners. Okay, your latest print run costs $400. Easy enough, everyone throw $100 into the pot and we're all set. I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to rip on my former business partners. They were my friends. You know, I liked them and you know, I loved them like brothers. It's just that, unfortunately, this is just the path Lasalian Games took where it really wasn't making enough money for us to really continue doing it. And it became just an, essentially an expensive hobby. 
And as I said before, we had some pretty intense arguments during those years, and that's why I look back and sometimes find it amazing that we managed to come through that with our friendships intact. Well, let's move on to actually creating the game itself. First, you've got to start with an idea. So there's two key pieces of advice I have to give here. First, most importantly, make the game you want to play. I can't stress this enough because you have to be your game's biggest cheerleader. You're the one who's going to be there at conventions and game demos. You are the public face for your product. So if you're trying to tell someone about your game at a convention and you're just like, yeah, I've got this fantasy RPG thing I made. Uh, you can be like, um, like a wizard or a dwarf and there's like humans, uh, there's uh, dragons and giants and uh, demons, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun. You should, you, sh you should check it out. Now, if that is the sales pitch I gave to you, you probably would just keep on going. You probably wouldn't be interested because it would sound like I really didn't have much interest in my project. So a better approach might be like, yeah, I've designed this new game. Let's just say for the sake of our we call it Kings and Swords. Yeah, we'll do that. I, I created this new game called Kings and Swords. I put a lot of work into this. I tried to make a system that would give you a lot of flexibility in your character creation and one that would have rules that would be very streamlined, very easy to follow. I'm doing a demo of this game at 3 o'clock. You should come check it out if it sounds interesting to you. And... You know, that's going to be a little better because they're sounding more upbeat. You're sounding more positive about your product. And again, if you're at a convention giving a demo, you always want to try to invite people who are interested to those demos. Another piece of advice I'd like to give, at least when you're making your first product, try to do something different. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing a game where... Again, you play as elves and dwarves and wizards and knights in a magical world of dragons and giants and other fantasy creatures. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If that's the game you want to make, great. Go for it. Do it. But it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle because, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of role-playing games out there. And if you're making a game that the customer or potential customer perceives as being just another attempt to do Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder, it's going to be an uphill battle. You know, you might be trying to explain your game to your potential customer, but if he thinks it's just going to be Dungeons and Dragons but with different rules, he's probably going to say, eh, no thank you, I'm just going to stick with my D&D. Now another reason that you have to be cautious when you are creating a game that is a fantasy world of orcs and trolls and dwarves and humans and wizards and all that, is you risk having your game labeled as a fantasy heartbreaker. Fantasy heartbreaker is one of those terms that's probably going to have a different definition depending on who you ask. The first place I heard this term and I'm not sure if this is the guy who created it, but there's an RPG author named Ron Edwards who runs a website called The Forge. or I think it's like indie-rpgs.net, but if you search The Forge or if you search uh, Fantasy Heartbreaker, Ron Edwards, you should be able to find his site, though I don't think they really keep it up to date anymore, but he still has some articles on there. And he had a couple of articles called, one was called Fantasy Heartbreakers, and the other one was called More Fantasy Heartbreakers. And yes, Demon Slayer was listed in the second article as a Fantasy Heartbreaker. As I said, it's going to have different meanings depending on who you ask. I believe the most common definition for Fantasy Heartbreaker is it's a game that tries to be Dungeons and Dragons all over again. So part of the problem is, you could have a really awesome product that just happens to have elves and dwarves and dragons and such in it, but if that potential customer thinks, eh, Fantasy Heartbreaker, he might not be interested in even giving it a shot. 
so that's one of the reasons why I really recommend that you want to try to think of something different. Try to combine genres. Good example, my after-peak systemless setting, one of my first products I made. It was designed to be used with any game system, so I didn't have to worry about someone saying, well, why should I play this when I already have Dungeons & Dragons? Well, that's because after-peak and my other systemless settings they're designed to be used with any game system. If you want to play it with Dungeons & Dragons, you can. If you want to play it with one of the White Wolf games, you can. You want to play it with Shadowrun. Whatever you want, go for it. But it also tried to combine genres. In this case, post-apocalypse, fantasy, and science fiction. I heard one person describe it as being kind of like riffs, but more grounded. So, in other words... You're not going to have a wizard riding a mech fighting against cybernetic dragons. Don't get me wrong, I think Rifts has an interesting setting, but it's not really a game I've played too much, but that's one of the things that does seem kind of crazy about it is, yeah, you can have a wizard who rides a mech, but if that's what you like, no problem, more power to you. If a game system allows you to get together with your friends for a few hours and have fun, then it's a good game system. But getting back to the term fantasy heartbreaker, Ron Edwards said that usually fantasy heartbreakers do have at least one good idea in them. It's just sometimes trying to get to that good idea is like trying to find a diamond at the bottom of a pile of manure. You're going to have to go through a lot of stuff in order to get to it, and hopefully it'll be worth it once you get to that, that diamond. He also criticized some fantasy heartbreakers with having ideas that might have been innovative 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but unfortunately those ideas just really aren't innovative by today's standards. Well, once you have a genre and a game world and a setting design for your game, or at least have the ideas for it, the next thing you want to do is come up with your game mechanics. One of the things you want to do when you're creating the actual game system, you kind of need a balance between crunch and fluff. For those who might not be aware of what those terms mean, crunch is described as the rules that are necessary to play the game. For example, rules for how to hit something, how to avoid being hit, how to avoid getting killed by a spell, how to spot something that's out of place, how to pick a lock. Those are all examples of crunch. You need to know how to do those things in order to actually play the game. Fluff, on the other hand, is described as the stuff that's really not as necessary to play the game. It's kind of nice to know, but again, you can get by without it. Let me give you one of my favorite examples of fluff in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Game Master's Guide, they have a section about alignment. And they give an example of a party of nine adventurers, one with each of the different alignments. And they give examples of how they would interact with each other. And I think they also do the same example in, well, the same party, but a different example in the player's handbook. So that would be an example of fluff. Do you need to know how a group of adventurers, each with a different alignment, would interact with each other? No, not really, but it is still kind of fun to read. So this is where we get into rules light versus rules heavy systems. Honestly, there's really no problem with either one. If you want to make a rules light system, go for it. A rules light system is going to be one where it's not very crunchy. There aren't a lot of rules to memorize, and usually a lot of things are going to be based on game master interpretation. A good example of a rules light system would be basic Dungeons and Dragons. Also, I would consider Marvel superheroes from TSR to be rules light because there's really not a lot of game mechanics, and the game does leave a lot of room for interpretation and a lot of room for game master discretion. Whereas the rules heavy systems or the crunchier systems, those are the game systems that are going to have rules for just about every possible situation you could encounter. 
Now, to use Dungeons & Dragons as an example, I would say it's a good example of a game that started out fairly rules-light. If you look at the first version, the basic Dungeons & Dragons, really not a lot of rules in there, so pretty easy to pick up and go. But as Dungeons & Dragons started to evolve over the years, it con got continually crunchier and crunchier. You know, there were now... In 2nd edition, there were kits you could choose. And of course, in 1st and 2nd edition, it was no longer, you're an elf. Instead, you would be like an elf fighter magic user, or, or you could be like an elf fighter or an elf thief. Dwarves weren't necessarily restricted to just essentially being fighters. Now, you could have a dwarven fighter or a dwarven cleric. So again, you got more rules, more options. 2nd edition, again, we had the kits. And 3rd edition, of course, introduced feats and prestige classes. You know, 4th edition, well, I think 4th edition tried to move a little less crunchy because while you had a lot of options, at least from my experience with 4th edition, they tried to simplify it a little bit. And 5th edition seems to be taking a more rules-light approach where, you know, again you don't have as many options at first level to create your character, but you still have enough crunch there to really flesh out your character and make a character that's going to be fun to play. In my opinion, it really depends on what you like. If you're not a fan of rules-light systems, probably don't want to make a rules-light system. But I would try to shoot for the middle ground. Try to make a game system where there are rules that you... And there are player options that you can use. But you still want to have some things up to Game Master discretion, and you don't want to bury the players and rules and options, because that can get kind of confusing. So, to sum it up, and again, this is just my opinion, there is no right or wrong way to make the game mechanics, but there are ideas that do work better than others. Another thing to consider class-based systems versus skill-based systems. Both have their merits. The biggest criticism I hear of class-based systems is that it's a little more limited. If you're a fighter, for example, you're going to be really good with weapons and armor, but you're not going to have much in the way of stealth or magic. And again, they did fix this over the years with D&D. Again, a good example is, you know, 3rd edition, how... Anyone could learn how to pick a pocket or move silently. So if you had a fighter and you wanted him to learn how to sneak around, you could do that. It's just it's going to cost you a few more points. So that's one of the things where I think that 3rd edition really got it right. I do like how they tried to make it where anyone could learn anything, but if you're not a member of that specific class, it'll cost you more. Dream Park. Another good example of a role-playing game that gives you amazing amounts of flexibility with your character design. Again, you could be a fighter and you could learn superhero powers. It's just it's going to be harder for you to learn those than someone who's a member of the superhero class. Skill-based systems have the strength of being a little more diverse. You know, again, you've got these skill points and your character is going to form in how you spend those skill points. I'd have to say the only real drawback to that is, well, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, it can be kind of fun if you can make a character that can use any weapon, use any armor, and cast any spell, even if, you know, it's not at a high degree of level, but there's still a game balance issue. Yes, mages have all these powerful spells, but to make up for it, they're squishy, they're easy to hit, and they can't take a lot of punishment and they're not very good with weapons. So you got to try to shoot for that game balance there. Another thing to consider, ability scores. Are they going to be static? You know, so if you have uh, 12 strength at first level, is that strength still going to be 12 when you hit 20th level? Or do you want to give your characters some way to change their stats over time? And this is something we've seen in uh, the editions of Dungeons and Dragons from third to present where your stats do go up as your character advances in level. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I think one of the things that is kind of attracted to that type of system is the fact that people usually do change through the course of their lives. 
I mean, I know I've been through physical and mental changes from high school until when I graduated college. And the Al who graduated college is not the same person that I am today. So, again, we're, we're humans. We're complex. We change through the course of our lives. Another thing to consider is alignment or some sort of ethical system. This can be helpful for role playing because it gives you a base to go on as to how would my character react in this situation. Again, to use Dungeons and Dragons. Someone who's lawful good is going to have a different reaction to seeing a purse snatcher take away a purse from an old lady than someone who is chaotic good. Naturally, both characters are going to want to help that old lady who just had her purse stolen. But the lawful good character is going to probably be more inclined to try to catch that criminal and bring him to justice, whereas the chaotic good character probably would not have as many qualms about beating up the purse snatcher and leaving him lying on the corner of the street. Not necessarily to die, but he's not necessarily going to be as concerned about his safety. At least that's just one way to interpret it. Now the next point, I'm not sure how applicable it is today. This was more of a point to consider back when 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons came out because they had the whole open gaming license. And that is, if there's a game system that does offer an OGL, do you want to take advantage of it? I'm not going to get too much into this because this is another one of those topics that I could probably do an entire episode on. The advantage of using an open gaming license is it gives you a potential batch of customers. Like, again, let's go back to the days of 3rd edition. If I'm just starting out and I've just made a book of feats and an adventure that has the D20 logo on it, someone who sees those books at a convention might be like, oh, this is compatible with 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. I play 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. This product will be useful to me. The disadvantage, though, is you might also have people just pass you by simply because you are OGL. I remember reading about one company who started out as a D20 system, again, making products compatible with 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons, but eventually they decided to move on and stop making the D20 products because, well, one of the guys commented that they were going to conventions and there were people who would pass them by just because they were D20. And again, this is where it's the whole two-edged sword because, again, if I see a book that someone's selling and it's labeled as being compatible with 3rd edition, then if I'm a 3rd edition fan, I know that I can make use of that. If I'm not a 3rd edition fan, then I'm not going to be interested in that book because I pretty much have expectations and preset notions as to what's going to be in that book. But if I create an all-new original system, that's not necessarily much easier either. Because again, let's say you're a real hardcore 3rd edition fan and you see my Modern Monks role-playing game at a convention. You are going to have to pick up the book and relearn the rule system. You might not have the time or the, the desire to do that. On the other hand, if you're not a fan of a lot of the newer RPGs, you might be like, oh, Modern Monks. I've never seen this game before. Sounds kind of interesting. I'm going to give it a try. So you're probably noticing this. There's a lot of things in producing a role-playing game that are, as I said, and I hate to overuse this, they're a two-edged sword. Now once you're starting to get your system underway, it's time to start doing some playtesting. Of course, your friends and your immediate gaming group are great places to go for playtesters. But one of the problems with doing playtests with friends, sometimes you're going to have friends who might not like something in your game, but they don't want to hurt your feelings, so they might sugarcoat it, or they might not be completely honest. So that's one of the nice things about doing a playtest at your local game store. Chances are the people you meet at your local game store, they're not going to have that vested interest in your game, and they're not going to be as concerned about whether they're going to hurt your feelings or not. If they think something in your game stinks, they'll probably tell you to your face, 
You want my opinion? Well, I don't like this rule. I think it stinks. Probably one of the best places to go to run your games, though, is a gaming convention, if there happen to be any in your area. And I'll get more into this later, but I highly recommend going to as many game conventions as you possibly can. Sometimes gaming conventions will have an open gaming area, like they used to at Gen Con. And when I was in LaSalian Games, we would run our demos there. Also, another advantage of going to conventions as a game master, most conventions will let you in for either free or at a reduced price if you're going to be running games. As a matter of fact, I went to a convention last year where I was able to get in free because I ran several demos of my games. And this is how LaSalian Games grew our early fan base, by giving demos at either our local hobby stores or at Gen Con. Now, if you go as a vendor, even if you don't make any sales, it's still worthwhile because you're going to get your name out there. There's a convention in October down in Oshkosh. It used to be Oshkon, but then it, uh, that convention went out of business and it was taken over by a new group who named it New Game of Palooza. There's people that I see at these conventions year after year, and they recognize me and I recognize them. So you get your face out there. You get your name out there. You get that product recognition. Another great thing about going to conventions is it's an excellent opportunity to network with other publishers. And this is how I met up with David Peterson, who I mentioned before has done artwork for Aregean Entertainment, and I have had him do some artwork for me as well. The first convention I ever went to as Point of Insanity Game Studio was Oshkon back in October of 2009. And I was next to a company, Aregean Entertainment. And I got to talking to the couple guys there, and, you know, we hit it off, and we've become friends to this day. And that's a good example where, you know, like I said, I was able to meet an artist there and do some networking. Another nice thing about conventions is if you have a business card and if you have an online site that you sell your RPGs at, this can make it easier for people to purchase your products after the convention. I mean, if someone's there and let's say they've got $20 to spend and they have to choose between buying your product, which they may have never played before, or maybe there's some old D&D supplement they want, at least if they have your business card and your website, they can go and buy the product after the convention is over. Another way that the industry has changed is social networking. Definitely want to take advantage of social networking. Form a page for your game company on Facebook. Use Twitter. And what I've been doing is I've been using podcasts and I recently set up a YouTube channel. Now I know I really don't talk too too much about my products on my podcast but but it certainly doesn't hurt to talk about your products every now and then on your podcast if you do set one up. At least you want to inform customers of what you have out there. Now this brings me to the next point and that is marketing your game. Now I am not an expert on marketing and sales. That I will admit. But it is something you gotta be careful with. One thing I would advise against is claiming right off the bat that your role-playing game is the most original thing out there. I've seen companies do this every now and then. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that but really it's the fans who are going to decide if it's truly original and this is what I mean by that. RPGs now have been around for many, many years, a few decades. So it is getting harder to come up with original ideas. Chances are someone has done something in your game or something similar to it at one point or another. You just might not be aware of it because maybe there is some obscure role-playing game that was published 20 years ago that happened to be somewhat similar to your game. And if you never saw that obscure game, you'd have no way to know that your games were similar. As your company starts growing, and as you start to get more products out there, another suggestion I have is don't put all your eggs in one basket. That was one of the faults with LaSalian Games. We focused too much on Demon's Lair. Now near the end, we had ideas for some other games we were thinking of making, Unfortunately, 
we never really got around to a lot of them. And I know if you look up the old Lasalian Games website on the Wayback Machine, there is a page that does have some of the products that we were working on before the company went under. Unfortunately, those files are probably tucked away in a deep, dark corner of one of our computer hard drives somewhere. But here's why you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, why you don't want to focus too much on one specific product. Okay, now granted, Wizards of the Coast can get away with that because they took over the D&D brand, so they already had that brand recognition. Plus, Wizards of the Coast also has their Magic the Gathering cards, and they also have their miniature games that they do as well. So, if someone doesn't really like Dungeons and Dragons or is not interested in the current version of it, Wizards of the Coast still has other things they can offer. Again, you might not be a fan of Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, but maybe you might like the D&D miniature games, or maybe you might like to play Magic the Gathering. But for a smaller publisher, you want to try to develop a couple different rule systems and a couple different products. And the reason is, well, think of it kind of like a soda company. Let's say that Pepsi or Coca-Cola, they just offered one soda. We'll use Pepsi as an example. Let's say Pepsi just offered Pepsi-Cola and nothing else. Now, let's say that nobody liked Pepsi-Cola. Well, then Pepsi-Cola had no other options for the customer. So that's why you'll see with a lot of these soda companies, they'll have a cola. They'll have a citrus soda like a Mountain Dew or a Sundrop, various fruit flavors, and they'll usually have diet versions. Again, to use Pepsi as an example, you might not like Pepsi-Cola, but maybe you like Diet Pepsi, or you might like Mountain Dew. Even TSR tried to be diverse after they developed Dungeons & Dragons, because for a while they had the two-prong approach going where... They still offered basic Dungeons & Dragons for people who liked that game, but they also offered first and second, which were, again, those stepping stones. But TSR also made many other games. In addition to Dungeons & Dragons, they also had Marvel superheroes. They had Star Frontiers, Boot Hill, Gamma World. I believe they also had a fair number of board games they made as well. This brings me to my final point, resources. Some places you might want to go if you have questions or if you need inspiration or ideas for developing a role-playing game. There's a podcast I listen to every now and then called Fear the Boot. And a while ago, and wanting to say this was at least two or three years ago, they had an episode called Zero to Publish. And in this episode, they talked to a couple of up-and-coming game designers, and they just talked a little bit about going from being someone who just has an idea to start working your way up and start developing your products. And I think it may have been a two-part episode, so I would recommend checking that out if you have a chance. Another good site to go to is rpg.net. They have reviews there, but they also have columns, and sometimes they do have columns about game designs. I know they also have forums, but I really don't do as much with the forums anymore, but I know for a while there was an active game design forum, so that would be another place to look. Again, I did mention Ron Edwards and his website, The Forge, Indie RPGs. And as I mentioned before, I don't agree with everything he has to say, but I still recommend taking a look at his articles, because he does make some good points. Family and friends are another good place to look, especially if you have family or friends that were involved in business, because they might be able to offer you perspectives. Because this is one of the challenges, I think, with self-published authors like myself, we focus more on writing our products than actually marketing them. And we focus more on creating games we want to play and that we hope others will like as opposed to running an actual business. Again, I will freely admit that Point of Insanity Game Studio is not my primary source of income. I do have a full-time day job that I work for income as well as you know benefits and everything else that I need. But sometimes your family and friends can offer perspectives. One friend of mine even said that really the best people to go to are people who don't play role-playing games on a regular basis. Because if someone who's never picked up an RPG in their life 
can read your role-playing game that you made and be able to pick it up and get interested in it right away, that's a good sign. Finally, don't be afraid to talk to your fellow role-playing game publishers. This is why I said it's very important to go to conventions because you get a chance to meet these other people in the game industry, even if it is just people who are self-published, because sometimes they can give you tips or they can give you leads to artists. Again, that's how I met up with Dave Peterson, who has done several high-quality pieces of artwork for me. Well, this episode has gone on longer than I thought it was going to, but I hope you found the information here entertaining and informative, especially for those of you who are considering going into the role-playing game industry. Like I said, even if it's just a self-published author like me where you do this more for fun, but you know you happen to get a little supplementary income as well. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you again for listening. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.